Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 271 being recorded on Thursday, July 29th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, it is one of my favorite days of the year. And what's exciting is it happens four times a year. Yep, you guessed it, Amazon earnings. But uh, before we jump into some pretty dramatic earnings this quarter, you are coming to us live, live, live from New York City. So it's good that you're out there on the road again. And word has it you have some trip reports. And this is the first trip reports you've been able to um, give our listeners for the last 18 months. Yeah, like this feels like a um a little bit of normalcy for me is talking to you from a hotel room like i used to do this all the time and i i i think this is the first show in 18 months we recorded from a hotel nice well, let's jump into it i know you've been on many many uh store visits so let's what's what what have you been seeing yeah well it's fun i i mostly wanted to focus on stores that had opened uh for the first time during the pandemic and uh surprisingly there are several of those in New York City. Um, so I'll start with the one that is closest to my hotel, and therefore the first one I went to this morning. There's a, a new flagship Bed Bath & Beyond store that opened in Chelsea. And ordinarily, folks might say, why, why do we care about a Bed Bath & Beyond store? That doesn't sound very interesting. Um, and, and I get it. But uh, the reason it's a little interesting to me is because twofold. Uh, they've had a major management and leadership change at Bed Bath & Beyond. They, the new CEO uh, is a guy, Mark Triton, we've talked about a little bit. He was responsible for a lot of the the new product development at Target before he joined Bed Bath & Beyond. And he announced that he was doing a dramatic store redesign. Um, and so this Chelsea store is that store, and I wanted to check out um, how he's he's changed it from what we traditionally think of as a Bed Bath and & Beyond. And it is pretty substantial change. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, traditionally is a pretty chaotic treasure hunt. Um, so very hard to find your way around. Uh, people complain that they get lost and can't find an exit. The The lines of sight in a Bed Bath & Beyond are horrific. So they stack product to the roof so you can't see very far in any direction in the store. Um, and, you know, it's usually a cluttered mess. And so this store... Um, is, from a visual merchandising standpoint, is a much more organized, attractive store. Um, they, it's dramatically more open. It has clear lines of sight. It has um, like a nice wayfinding system and a visual hierarchy. You know, it, it doesn't feel as much like everything's about to fall on top of you or yell at you when you walk in the store. So it it visually is more impressive and it's a more imp- it's a more pleasant environment to stand in. Um, and so I'll I'll be curious. From a pure retail design standpoint, I would say it's it's way better, but it's pretty off brand for bed for what we traditionally have thought of as Bed Bath and Beyond, and um and because of all those those um sort of cleanliness approaches, it it actually has a fairly significant skew rationalization. So there's fewer skews in the store, and there's probably some Bed Bath and Beyond loyalists that are like you know, looking for some of those old products that they no longer have. So I'll be curious um, how the, the, if it successfully attracts a new shopper that didn't used to shop Bed Bath & Beyond and, and whether it alienates any of the traditional Bed Bath & Beyond shoppers. But part two of that store is that as he did at Target, uh, Mark has, has launched the first, like, owned brands for Bed Bath & Beyond, and those brands have sort of significant um, prominence in this new store design. So so there's like individual vignettes for every one of the Bed Bath & Beyond brands. They're all like um, very prominently signed as exclusive to Bed Bath & Beyond, and they're, they're well executed with attractive 
um, packaging and visual merchandising that makes them easy to recognize and differentiate. So uh, a, a bunch of sort of traditional things, right, that you kind of, you know, things that are tar- that Target's well known for doing well, like you're now seeing in Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, a, a fear is that people could walk in the store and say, wait, this is starting to feel like a Target store. Um, and so we'll, we'll see if, it, if, uh, how, how that all plays out. Um, but I would say if I had one knock on the store, um, it seems like they've changed the, the, the design team, but they haven't really changed the store operations team. And so the thing I noticed as well, the store was quite well designed and the product layouts all made sense. Um, the store was still starting to feel a bit like a cluttered mess because the same employees that used to work at the old store are working in this store and they're parking shopping carts full of product that they mean to restock on shelves, like out in front of things and blocking things. And it just, it, it doesn't seem like they've um, extended the the new visual merchandising approach to, to the, the staffing and store operations yet. So maybe a work in progress. Well, how did they, um, Aside from the shopping carts and the aisles, they decluttered it. You mentioned they have less SKUs, but did they go to kind of more of like a kiosk kind of a, or a, a much more clear kind of department kind of orientation or how, how yeah, did they so achieve it's, it's the very, it's, it's segmented by department and, and it may not be a fair representation because, well, uh, uh, this is a huge store. So it, it made it easier to kind of reconfigure things. It's a two story store. Um, so, you know, you have a home section, you have a bedding section, you have an organization section. Um, and, uh, you know, there aren't all these like random nooks and crannies amongst other things. Uh, I'll bet you shrink is way better in this store than bed, bath and beyond because it's super easy for shoplifters to hide in a bed, bath and beyond. Um, the, and, and what they tended to have is like a featured product display for every department. So you know, the, there's a, um, a sparkling water cafe sponsored by uh, soda stream, for example. And, um, you know, soda stream was a, a fast turn, uh, product in, in, uh, bed, bath and beyond, but here they have a woman working behind a counter, um, pouring samples of soda stream and they've launched all these, uh, soda stream launched this new product at bed, bath and beyond all these branded flavors you can add to the water. So like you can get the the bubbly branded flavors. And so she's, she's sampling different flavors for people. They have a coffee bar where they're making, you know, cured coffees. Um, the, all the owned products again, had their own like feature display where they, you know, set up a bedroom or a, a kitchen display that, that, uh, was, was featuring those bed, bath and beyond products. Uh, one of the bed, bath and beyond brands is about, um, uh, green cleanliness. And so they, you know, they have like a cleaning display and stuff like that. Um, cool. I would also say they leaned into mobile in the store and QR codes more than they have in the past. So like all of these featured displays had a big QR code you could scan that took you to a sort of a, a product specific landing page on, on, in their mobile app. Um, uh, in-store pickup was was much more prominent with like a dedicated area for for Bopus pickups in the front of the store. Uh, you could do self checkout with a uh, scan and go using the mobile app, and there was a lot of uh, merchandising promoting you to download the mobile app and and scan things with your your uh, uh, scan QR codes with your phone. Very cool. Any. I know you love QR codes and the only thing you love more is digital fact tags. Any exciting digital fact tags? They uh, did not have any digital fact tags. Again, uh, they they are using a lot more QR codes than Bed Bath & Beyond has ever used before. And it kind of makes sense because, you know, all the restaurants taught everyone how to use QR codes during the pandemic. And uh, side note, I, I've been getting a lot of complaints from people that the restaurants are not going back to paper menus. And I, I've certainly noticed that here in New York City is that like things are open up. They're not requiring people wearing a mask, but they still don't have menus and they expect you to order your own food from an app um, and a QR code on the table. So I wonder if that's going to be a a permanent thing. I, I've talked to several people that kind of miss the paper menus and ordering from a waitress. Hmm. Cool. What uh, Where'd you go after Triple B? Yep. Uh, so that's in Chelsea. Around the corner from this store is the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Um, and this store opened 
uh, during the pandemic as well, about six weeks ago. I actually had a chance to visit the store before it opened, but this is the first time I got to visit it with people in it. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a super well done themed store. Um, we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, it's the same, uh, sort of, uh, team that, that did the wizarding world of Harry Potter theme park, um, experience. So it's, uh, you know, they, they use, they use the actual like, um, tools and dies for props for the movie to, to make everything. And they had a, uh, a bunch of cool experiences. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of personalized products. You can get your name engraved on a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, you can get your own admission letter to Hogwarts. Um, they have exclusive products. Like there's a, uh, a, a, a particular version of the, the wand, the, the golden finch wand that you can only get from this store. So if you're a collector of the wands, um, there's some product scarcity. Uh, they have, they have food. Um, they have a bar essentially for sale and it's, it's selling the, the butter beer, which is, uh, from the, the um the movie and is a a horrible sweetened alcoholic beverage um there's a non-alcoholic version as well uh they're in the movies there's like there's a magic candy store so they have the magic candy store um and then uh and so the merchandising and stuff is is uh really good um what's interesting about this store is that you have to get in a virtual line to get in the store so you you scan a QR code on your phone and that reserves your place in line. And then you get texted when you're allowed to come back to the store and go into the store. And so I showed up at like 1030, scanned the QR code, and it said that I was 231 first in line to walk into the store. So it, I had to uh, wait for about 45 minutes. So that's, you know, two or three Starbucks for me. Um, and then I got to go in the store uh, and in the store are two virtual reality theme park rides. Um, and sadly I have not gotten an opportunity to try either of those. Uh, you buy tickets for those online separately from entering the store and, uh, the, the tickets sold out for the entire window that they're selling tickets for like the first week that the store opened. So, so it'll be a few months before you, uh, you can get a ticket and do one of these virtual reality rides. So you just, uh, there, there's no motion. The motion's all VR, or there's like a combo. You're in. My, so I don't know. My understanding is one of them is a is like a, a sit in VR. So I I do think it has motion. Um, but it's it's like it it's not forward motion. It's it's like the jerkiness. Ah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what the right word for that is. Um, but it moves yeah. a few inches in every direction. Is my understanding. Um, and you're looking through a VR headset. The other experience, you're walking and you wear like a backpack and a VR headset. And I, I, I'm people say it's amazing. I'm curious how that works, because from previous VR experiences, you know, first time people are not super comfortable in the VR environment. And like people tend to like fall and stumble and do all kinds of things. So I'm I'm. I, I'm not exactly envisioning how this works, so I'll be curious to to try it one day. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people get nauseous from those VR things too, so they'll have to. I wonder how toned down it'll be. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder what what cleaning protocol is used. <laughs> <laughs> what uh? Well, since it's magic, they can just you know flick the wand and they're good to go. Did uh? What house did you get sorted into? Um. Uh, yeah. So I didn't uh, visit the sorting hat. I did. You know, get my picture taken in Hagrid's shoes um and in the uh oh we got uh, ha- Hagrid's quite notes. a bit taller than me uh I'm about as wide as him but that's a separate issue um the <laughs> the um I got my picture taken in the the phone booth uh and I got Stephen a um a griffin uh door uh jersey and some uh uh unlimited flavor jelly beans nice very cool Birdie bots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. And then, uh, so you left there, um, yep. half drunk off butterbeer and where'd you go? Exactly. So then I went to the meat packing district, which is, uh, just a little South of Chelsea. Um, and the, I, my, my main destination there was that there is a new, um, Google store for the first time. So Google has had pop-up stores and temporary stores in the past, but this is their first, 
um, permanently open store. Uh, and it's open in what um, still is a Google office, but was formerly the Google headquarters in, in New York. Um, and so it uh, this took like the ground floor of that and turned it into a retail experience. Hmm. So it's all the, just mostly the Google, what do they call it? The Google home or Google talk stuff. Yeah. It's, it's so mobile. So all the, the Androids and pixels um, it's Google home. So nest and, and uh, um, the Google version of Alexa, which is I think called Google home. Um, and then some, some uh, like miscellaneous stuff. Like they have some gaming products and some things like that. Cool. Uh, are they still making Nexus phones? I haven't seen those in a long time. Uh, yeah. So they, well, I don't, uh, I don't think Nexus is them. Their version is called the pixel. So the Google pixel oh, is yeah. a Google branded Android phone. Yeah. They went from Nexus to pixel or something. Yeah. Um, and they, they might have a tablet that's still branded Nexus, but I'm not super current on the, on the Google hardware ecosystem. I would, I would say I was a little underwhelmed by this store. Like it, it's a, um, perfectly reasonably executed store. It frankly doesn't feel any different than their pop-up stores. It seems like it has a very consistent um, merchandising approach that doesn't feel like they invented anything new. There's no digital fact tags. There's no QR codes. Um, there's very limited product information and it feels more like a showroom than a store. So like there's, you know, one of everything kind of locked down and you have to talk to a person to get help. You can't like, pick up your own products and pay for them. And I bought a few things from the store and um, they struggled to take my money. Like they, they all have mobile point of sale. All the sales associates have mobile point of sale systems, but like it didn't seem like they mostly knew how to work them. And this is a store that's been open for five weeks. Um, and none of them were logged into their point of sale terminals. So they had to like take it out of their belt and go through like a five minute, like authentication process before they could take my money, which kind of tells you that they're not doing a high volume of, of uh, selling stuff out of the store. Yeah. Did you try to pay with Apple Pay? I did. In fact, I didn't try. I succeeded. <laughs> Whoa, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, and, and so I literally like looked at him and I'm like, can I pay with Apple Pay? And then he like looked at me and said, um, uh, you, you mean NFC payment? Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, that did work eventually once I found someone that had, was logged into their point of sale terminal. I would say the best part of this store, um, was that they had several vignettes in separate little rooms, um, that were kind of great retail theater that was kind of telling the story of a particular genre of Google product. So like I sat down on a couch in a, in, in a little room that's, you know, kind of designed to look like a small house and, uh, they teach you about all the Google home products. So, so they have like a projector that projects uh, text down on the coffee table in front of you. And they come up with all these scenarios, like in the window, you see the, the silhouette of a UPS delivery driver come up and you hear someone knock on the door. And then the table says, you know, teaches you how to use Google home to look at the front door camera. Um, and so you can see the UPS driver and, and approve the package. And then, um, uh, a woman in the background asks you if you're cooking lunch and the table teaches you how to use Google home to find a recipe to cook. And, um, you know, the table teaches you how to pick some music to listen to and how to turn off the lights and run a good night routine to get ready for bed, stuff like that. So it, it was nice retail table. theater. Um, you know, it can only serve one group group at a time. Um, and so again, it, it feels like, you know, exactly what it is. This store is, you know, mostly focus on sort of being a, an education uh, showroom for, for these Google technologies more than like a high volume retail environment. Cool. So after being quote unquote, that guy that had to pay with Apple pay at the Google store, where, where'd you go next? I think they were just thrilled. I was that guy that paid for something. Um, but yeah, so then two other stores that are kind of kitty corner from the, the Google store um, that I had been to before, but like I, um, really only opened just before the pandemic. So I wanted to check them out again while I was there. Um, the There's a neighborhood goods store. So we've talked about neighborhood goods. This is like one of these um, uh, D to C department store concepts where it's like a, a shared retail space and brands rent rent um, space, primarily like D to C challenger brands rent space inside of this 
this department store. So there's a bunch of vignettes in the store. Uh, we visited one in, in uh, uh, Texas. I think you were with me. Yeah. Uh, and so this is uh, the Manhattan one. Um, and, you know, as I've discussed before, like this, is, it's reasonably well executed. I actually think Neighborhood Goods does the best job amongst the companies that that do this. But I'm I'm not super bullish on the concept um, because it's the the big problem is it's kind of a a chaotic hodgepodge of assortment. Like there isn't a merchant saying customers are coming to our store to solve problem X, and so I'm going to have these products that solve that problem. Like so, it's kind of a you have to go to the store, you know, willing to be completely surprised by what they have in the store. Right. And it might be beauty products. It might be apparel. It might be beachwear. Um, you know, you couldn't go there with any specific need and have any confidence that, that there was going to be a product that matched that need there. But I would say neighborhood goods feels a little more curated and a little more focused than, than, uh, um, with a point of view than some of these others. And then uh, I visited the uh, the most important retailer in Manhattan, which is the Starbucks Reserve Store. So um, this there this is there's a small fleet of Starbucks stores that are called the Starbucks Reserve Stores. They all have working um, coffee roasteries in them. And if you buy the premium beans from any Starbucks anywhere in the world that come in the black bags, they're getting roasted on premises in these stores. These stores all have like alcohol um, and unique coffee bars. Um, and a bunch of drinks that you can't get at a regular store. Um, they usually have some like, um, third party restaurants in the stores and they're, they're huge, extravagant, beautiful architecture, um, stores. So the largest coffee shop in the world is a Starbucks roastery, uh, in my, in my uh, city in Chicago. Uh, the first one of these was in Seattle, which is home of Starbucks. Uh, the only other one in the U S is this Manhattan one in Flatiron, which is, um, a lovely execution, but I would say nothing that I haven't seen in one of the other uh, Starbucks reserves. And then there now is like a Starbucks reserve in Shanghai and a Starbucks reserve uh, most controversial of all um, in uh, one of the cities in Italy. Mm. And I say controversially because the Italians like their coffee and don't necessarily appreciate the American coffee brand. So it was kind of a bold move on uh, Starbucks part to open this, ginormous uh coffee emporium in in italy right teach them how real coffee is made exactly um my favorite feature of the starbucks reserve stores is i mentioned they roast their own beans in the store and then they have these fancy coffee bars so what they've done is they they have a willy wonka style vacuum tube uh or a series of tubes um so to me it's a metaphor for the internet uh that runs from the the roastery to the coffee bar and so the the you literally like if you're there when they're roasting can watch beans like flow through these tubes um straight from where they've been roasted to uh the the bar where they get ground into coffee drinks that sounds cool yeah yeah it's very very willy wonka-esque and again the starbucks folks do a great job of visual merchandising um this kind of reminds me of um the first time I walked into a Nike town and it was kind of this like a uh, temple to the Nike brand. And they did all these things that back then were not common. Like they, you know, designed the door handles of the store to be swooshes and all these cool little touches. And, uh, um, in many ways, this, these Starbucks stores feel like the, the modern successor to that. Cool. I noticed you didn't uh, mention one of our favorite stores beta. And that made me think about, one of the big buzzes before the pandemic was that Hudson Yards. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Is uh, what's going on with, with those guys? Um, well, so I don't have super firsthand information. Hudson Yard is still open. Uh, a giant floor of Hudson Yard was a Neiman Marcus, the fanciest Neiman Marcus. And that is out of business. Um, I don't think they have another tenant for that yet, but I didn't go to Hudson Yard in this visit. Um, it, it's actually in this area, so it would have been uh, possible to walk to, but I just didn't have time. Um, and that Hudson Yard does have a beta. Um, you know, I think beta uh, struggled a little bit in the pandemic. They they kind of were optimized to be pandemic unfriendly. Like most of their stores are in malls like Hudson Yard that had significant decline in, tra in traffic. 
and they're kind of the opposite of essentials, right? Like, so they're, um, they, they have a very curated point of view. They're consumer electronic gadgets. But again, you wouldn't go there because you need a Bluetooth headset. Like you'd go there to find some new, new gadget that you didn't know existed that you wanted. And I think that kind of shopping, you know, was particularly impacted by the pandemic. Like you tended to only go to the store when you really needed something. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, some of the founders of, of uh, Beta, including Bibu, who's been on our show, I think at least once, um, were kind of public during the pandemic about some of the the challenges they were having trying to take care of their employees and, and you know, um, stay open and generate revenue. Um, and I would say, you know, one thing that I've been a little critical of Beta, I think they do a bunch of things very well. Um, they've always been slow to embrace omni-channel in the web. So they really focus on the in-store experience. And I've been kind of critical that they don't have a equivalent online experience. And I have a feeling that that, that deficiency probably, you know, was extra painful during the pandemic. So hopefully they're starting to recover now. Yeah. Yeah. I hope they make it too. Cause that's one of my favorite, favorite gadgety places to go. Uh, yeah. I have to be honest. I, cause I, I also, I didn't even mention it cause they're so boring, but I bounced into the Flatiron Apple store um, and, and it like, it, it dawned on me how fun I used to think it was to walk into a, a tech store or a computer store or even a Best Buy, because you would always discover something you didn't know existed that you wanted. And that doesn't happen anymore. Like there's, there's very few stores that surprise and delight you with their product assortment. Like, you know, because of the, uh, uh, the you know all the digital pre-shopping like you're you're way more likely to know about all the co- cool products from from the web before ever, before you'd ever you know uh stumble across it in the store and in the case of apple they're they're you know rationalizing their inventory to exclusively apple products so they just have less interesting accessories and you know lesser known things than they've ever had before cool well that sounds like a, a busy day yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little tired. Uh, uh, and then, of course, I had to spend about eight hours deep diving into the Amazon earnings. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good setup. Well, thanks for doing those trip reports for us. I know uh, uh, enjoy hearing hearing your exploits as you're out there, and hopefully, you can keep exploring. This Delta variant won't shut you down. Uh, so let's jump into the Amazon quarter. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. So you know, Amazon released calendar Q2 results. And I'd say it was the toughest Amazon quarter in, in quite a while. So, um, you know, the headline here is in, in Wall Street vernacular, um, companies put out their own con- uh, projections and then Wall Street kind of does their own math, which is called consensus. Um, a lot of times, based on the history of how the company does, Wall Street will either go above kind of what the company says or below it or whatnot. And I would qualify and when you when you exceed Wall Street's expectations, that's called a beat. And then when you then Wall Street's always looking out, it's a what have you done for me lately or in the future kind of thing. So then they're always thinking about you know what's going on in Q3, and they already have consensus for that. So you either beat or miss the current quarter and then raise neutral or lower the forward quarter or the year's um, viewpoint. And this is this is kind of the, the worst uh, scenario here is it was a miss. So they missed Wall Street's revenue expectations, and then they lowered the revenue expectations going forward. Um, so so that that's no good. And we'll dig into what happened there. And then the silver lining here, though, is the, the miss part is really isolated to the on what's called the segment called online store, which is effectively the e-commerce part of the business, which with Amazon obviously is pretty big and important, but they actually exceeded expectations on the high margin parts of the business that everyone really values even more than when you see these, some of the parts kind of things. Uh, so things like the advertising piece, we talk about AWS and some of the other, the third party marketplace, um, they actually exceeded expectations on those side. So if there's a silver lining, um, it's that they they kind of, you know, the e-commerce year over year comparisons were really tough and we'll go into why, uh, but then the other non-e-commerce parts of the business did really well. Also, as a reminder, this is the first quarter where Jeff Jassy is taking over. So the new CEO is taking over. Uh, so Andy the timing, 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did I say Jeff? Andy. Andy Jassy is taking over. So, um, you know, the timing is tough for him because he gets to kind of reside over, you know, what feels like a long time since the, the company has missed a quarter. But in a way, you know, it's a chance. It's kind of what a lot of Wall Street people would also call a kitchen sink quarter. So you, you kind of like, if you're going to have a little bit of a rough quarter, you might as well sweep everything into this quarter, lower expectations, and then that resets the bar, hopefully, so that you can then start to get back to exceeding that those expectations. So um, a lot of folks were kind of saying, you know, the projection didn't, it felt pretty aggressively low compared to the quarter. Um, so a lot of people were, were kind of framing it as maybe that's what's going on there. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I listened to the... Um the the webcast um uh where you know reporters and analysts get to call in and ask questions and and you know one of the questions was kind of critical um asking like what they what they missed in terms of pandemic trends that that adversely affected in this quarter and and i don't remember who the amazon employee was that answered but he's like we've been pretty consistently bad at predicting the impact of the pandemic. <laughs> He's like, you know, in the, in the good quarters, we wildly underestimated um, what would happen. And, you know, this quarter we, we over, we underestimated the, the counter trends. And so, you know, he's like, at least we've been consistent in being, being wrong. Yeah. It is hard to predict even now, you know um, it's hard to predict what the second half of this year is going to look like. Right. You can, you know, the data, the immediate data is telling you everything is like on fire. Um, and, but then, you know, this Delta variant, you know, there's all these talks of shutdowns and stuff again. So the the cone of uncertainty is is quite large right now for everybody. Yeah. And so, I, oh, go ahead. Hey. I was just going to say, I, had, I, I almost wonder if Amazon, like, is taking a little extra hit for being uh, one of the earlier Q2 earnings calls. Because I feel like everyone's going to have a kitchen sink quarter. It's going to be super complicated, and there are going to be ups and downs, um, you know, for a, for a lot of retailers. And I think you know the the analysts are kind of learning about the factors through these these first couple earnings calls. But uh, you know, the the Amazon quarter may not look as bad, you know, once once we get through the whole earnings season and see how everyone uh, shook out. Yeah, I think what what we'll do is we'll kind of track this through the next couple of weeks and and you know, maybe it actually won't look bad in hindsight, but kind of being one of the first ones to report. The only one that I saw that came out earlier was Shopify and they had a, a pretty rip roaring quarter. They exceeded that was a, a a beat and exceed. So so uh you know it's kind of kind of weird of the mix of what's going on here and uh, I can't 100% parse out like why would Shopify do better than Amazon, and you know why would an SMBs do better than than big old Amazon? So maybe maybe it's just a comp thing year over year, but we'll we'll dig into that for listeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, side note: my hypothesis on Shopify would be that the pandemic taught a lot of small businesses that they needed a website, and Ideally, if they were in one of these categories where they were outsourcing digital to DoorDash or Instacart or, you know, um, my web grocer or someone else um, that they started thinking about needing their own website. And if they were, you know, mainly selling through marketplaces and then, you know, Amazon throttled FBA, like they suddenly realized they needed their own direct sales. And so, like, I do think there there are a bunch of the pandemic trends that would particularly cause small business is to invest in their own website for the first time. And so that that could have could mean that a bunch of new um, customers onboarded onto Shopify, which kind of helped goose their their number. Yeah, and they don't break out kind of new net new business. No, no, sales, I wish so. they did because yeah. that again, like they, they had a huge GMB growth, but the problem is we never know if that's because the stores that have been using Shopify for a while doubled in size or because they doubled the amount of stores they host. Let's dig into the Amazon numbers to kind of give the context as kind of one of the, the early results here, and then then we'll follow up with some more details. So uh, overall sales increased 24%, taking out the effect of uh, currency and variations for, for the quarter uh, to $113 billion for the second quarter. That is the slowest growth since... 2019. And that's when I stopped looking back. So, you know, Amazon's been growing 
much, much faster than 24% for, for quite a while here. So this was a, a very slow quarter, um, which is kind of funny because pre-pandemic e-commerce was growing 15%. So so it's all relative, I guess, but but slow for Amazon, you know, actually above baseline for normal e-commerce, I would say. This caused them to miss the consensus. So the number they came out with was 113. Consensus was 115 and change. Um, and then, you know, Amazon, they did kind of come within their own guidance, but at at kind of the midpoint, whereas for the last six plus quarters, they've come in at the high or beat their own guidance. Um, and then another thing, you know, if as you think about these moving parts, Q2 21 had prime day and last year it was in Q4 of 20. So we should have had the benefit of prime day, but then, you know, obviously Q2 20 COVID was at its, its peak and Amazon was, was quote unquote benefiting from that surge and all the PPE stuff they were pushing out and essentials and all that. Um, And then obviously we don't have that this year. Um, So, so lots of moving parts going on. um, And then, uh, Amazon does peel the onion a little bit with the segments. And why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, uh, happy to. So uh, the the big segments that, that Amazon um, discloses are, are North America, International, and AWS. Uh, so North America um, in Q2 of uh, 2020 had grown 43%. Um, tends to be growing a little slower than international. Um, it's, it's the biggest piece of the business. I want to say it's like 62% of the business. Um, and so this, this Q2, uh, it only grew by 22%. So the rate of growth uh, substantially slowed down. Um, the, you know, a couple of the things we, we try to uh, zero in on in that are the online sales and the brick and mortar sales. Uh, so the online stores grew by 13%, which is, again is the slowest rate of growth for North America online stores in, uh, at Amazon that I can, uh, find in history. Hmm. Um, so, so that, that's a pretty significant deceleration. And, you know, pre pandemic, we used to talk about e-commerce growing about 12% a year. Um, and Amazon was typically their store, uh, their online st- sale, uh, North American sales were growing in the like 30 to 40% a year. So, um, it, we, we won't know yet. The Department of Commerce data on e-commerce won't come out for Q2 th- until August, but it's very possible that this will be the first time in a very long time, uh, that Amazon's growth in e-commerce was slower than the industry average. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that that's not going to be true, that the industry average is going to slow down as well. But like, you know, they're the, those numbers are flirting with each other and usually Amazon is well above the, the industry average. Um, and then also interesting and, and quite complicated is physical stores. So physical stores had a rebound. They were up 10% uh, Q2 of this year versus Q2 of last year. Um, and, uh, you know, the previous quarters had been uh, going down quite a bit. So Q2 of last year was down 13% from the previous year. So the 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 thing then think about here is physical stores at Amazon mostly means Whole Foods. So they, they have um, about 50 non-Whole Foods stores or maybe 70 now. Um, but most of the revenue is whole food stores. And there's a, a quirk where when someone buys an online delivery order from whole foods, uh, Amazon online sales gets the credit instead of whole foods. So, so for a long time, the stores, their, uh, number has been declining and, and the hypothesis has been, that's because more people are learning how to shop online and that makes the the people that are buying from the cash registers at Whole Foods look smaller. Um, and so this was the first quarter in a long time that, that, that Whole Foods had a, a net growth, um, which is interesting because that grocery is not necessarily one of the categories that you would, um, uh, you know, that grocery had a huge quarter uh, during the, the pandemic. And so you would, you would expect not to see real, real healthy growth in grocery stores this year, comping against the pandemic uh, quarter from last year. So I, I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next category is international. Um, it was a little more uh, 
uh, robust versus uh, usual. Um, it was up uh, 26%, um, which I guess I, I misspoke because that's that's actually a lot slower than usual. Um, so, uh, so that also was kind of a downer. And then, uh, AWS, um, what, like grew quite robust. So it was up 37% versus, for example, being up 29% the, the same, uh, quarter last year. Um, so, so the rate of growth of AWS accelerated. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is how this plays out because of these diverse businesses Amazon has and the fact that, you know, AWS um, and some of the other businesses are are so margin favorable when, you know, retail is the biggest piece of their gross sales. So so when retail goes down, their gross sales go down, but their profitability goes up, basically. Um, and conversely, if retail has a gangbuster uh, quarter, it likely is going to have a negative impact on their on their margins. So. So, you know, there's always happy and unhappy news in in uh, a company as complex as Amazon these days. Yeah, the uh, international is interesting because I was scanning the results and I was like, oh, 36%, that's good. But then it was like XFX was 26%. So 10 points, you know, which is a pretty material chunk of that growth was due to currency. So that that was interesting. The dollar must have been strong a year ago and then quite weak now to have moved 10% yeah. against the basket of currencies they're measuring against. Yeah, in the press conference, the CFO called out that this is like one of the most complicated highest fluctuations of the international currencies and so he was he you know he was trying to exclusively talk about um the n- the normalized numbers because he's he's like you know this was a very unusual quarter from a, a currency standpoint yeah I've, I've done this you know having operated on the international side it's super frustrating because you're like oh man we had a great quarter and then you get the results of the you know taking out the currency and then like knocks like half of the work and out of there and you're kind of like that's not fair I'd, i have no control over that but it is what it is indeed it is part of the cost of, of doing business on that scale unfortunately um so uh a couple of things uh kind of sub sub numbers within those numbers that were interesting um you know increasingly amazon makes a lot of money selling services to the third party sellers um and so the the third party seller services number grew quite robustly that grew 30, 34% that's a nice high margin business um and i think the third party sellers as a percentage of total sales hit a new high mark um for q2 they were 56% of all sales so i that's the highest number i remember cuz i i want to say it was 54% last quarter which was at the time, the highest number. Yeah, that's interesting. It's been, you know, for the longest time, it was just at 50% for years and years. And then it seems to be on a bit of a takeoff right now, which is, which is interesting. I wonder if it's, you know, the conspiracy theorist would say, hmm, I wonder if this is a way of, of further insulating themselves from uh, scrutiny from, from antitrust. Yeah. And then one number that I, I was curious to get your take on. Um, so subscription services were up, 28%. And uh, the the thing that's interesting to me about that is I, I have always assumed that the bulk of subscription services is prime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think there's some data points from outside of the earnings call that point to the, the growth rate of prime members slowing substantially for Amazon. Um, so I think, you know, there were a bunch of forecasts that, that, uh, you know, they may have only added 2% new Prime members on Prime Day last year, which, um, you know, the, they're over half of all the households in America are Prime members. So they're kind of as the law of large numbers kicking in here. But, you know, they used to get the very robust double-digit growth in, in Prime members just from Prime Day. And it, it felt like those things are slowing down. So I was surprised to see subscription services so high. Do you have a, uh, a take on why that might have been? Yeah. So let's see. So we had two prime days in the last under a year. So we had October and then June. Most people would be in their free window. Isn't there a free window of prime still where you get 30 days free? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I don't think June would have really moved the number. So it must be residual from the Q4. No, that that would show up. That would kind of start in Q1. I don't know. That That's interesting. Yeah. Um I do I have read reports that they're 
you know, some of the international prime was kind of slow to take off and they've tweaked the offerings in some of the countries. Like the UK has been popular, but other parts of Europe, like maybe Italy and Spain, it's been a little sluggish. And then I think they've tweaked the offering and then India, I think they've been doing a big push there, if I recall. Yeah. So, so maybe, you know, again, it's kind of, um, they don't break, unfortunately, they don't break down that, that piece by North American international, like the other pieces we can kind of see. Um, my bet would be U.S. is slow, and maybe a lot of it came from international. No, that's a that. great point. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that, but you're, you're probably exactly right. And a reminder for listeners, uh, the prime offering in a lot of other countries is significantly different than the North American offering. The North American offering is the most robust. So there's a lot of things that you get in that North American offering that they're, they, you know, they're not doing same-day delivery in every market. They're not doing prime video in all 22 markets where they offer prime. So. So the, the, the offering is more compelling some places than others. Um, and then the most important number of all, Scott, you know, the number I always focus on is the um, uh, super descriptive other revenue. Um, and so as, as a reminder, um, other revenue, uh, we think in Amazon's case is mostly their advertising revenue. Um, and this this has been a rapidly growing number uh, for them every quarter, and it was rapidly growing again. Um, it had eighty three percent growth to you know just under eight billion dollars for the quarter. Um, I did some quick math, and I think my math ended up being slightly different than you. So I wonder if I did not currency adjusted, and you did currency adjusted, or or something like that. Um, but I think the run rate of the last four quarters for other is now 28 billion. Um, so that they are, they are like the clear number three advertising network in the U S um, and they are, they are rapidly gaining on Google and Facebook. Yeah. I think the trailing 12 would be that number. And then I think the run rate would be about eight times four, which would be 32. Oh, fair enough. The yes. run rate. Yeah. Yeah, so although I don't right. think that's Yay. completely even. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that assumes that they're going to you know, at least do that as well as they did this quarter going forward. Now, this this is one of the things that would have had a in-the-quarter bump from uh, Prime Day. Yeah, and I, I heard anecdotally, you probably have better kind of quantitative data on this, that this Prime Day, people got like really knives out fighting for customers and spending a ton on ad dollars. Did you hear... Some some more stuff amongst yeah, the clients. and I, I think like every other advertising platform under the world uh, in the world, like the Amazon is getting better and better about optimizing the pricing for Prime, which means the it is less profitable for the advertisers, right? Like because they're getting as much um, as they possibly can, so the kind of the um, the return on ad spend is going down as the revenue to Amazon is is going up. Um, and uh, increasingly, like there is no visibility for your deals on on Prime Day, like unless you support them with ads. So in the, in the same way, like no one's going to see your organic content on Facebook if you don't buy an ad. Um, you know, no, nobody's going to see your product listings on on Amazon without ad support. Yep. Yeah, pretty Pretty amazing how fast they made that go from a hey, if you want a little bit of extra traffic, do this. Now it's like, hey, if you want to sell anything, you better run some ads. Yeah, it's the bane of my existence because every retailer is trying to recreate that, you know, on a smaller scale, um, and it it creates all kinds of complications. Like as a brand, it's really hard uh, right now because you're getting extorted for uh, retail advertising dollars from all these retailers that, in many cases, don't have the reach to justify the money they're asking for. But you, in some cases, you can't say no because they're your wholesale partner that's going to kick you out of the store if you don't give them the money. So it's interesting. Yeah. Cool. So those were the segments. And then, so I would say while she was kind of looking at that, like uh, kind of a mixed bag, you know, we wish they had at least meet uh, expectations there, but it's nice that the high margin things kind of beat our expectations. Uh, and then the guidance came out and that's kind of like where everyone was like, oh, this is, this does not look good. So um what happened here is they guided to 106 to 112 billion. So at the midpoint, it's 109. That is 13% year over year growth. Consensus was at 119. So they're off by kind of 10 billion there. They, they lowered the expectation by 10 billion. Um, and then uh, during the Q2 results, we didn't go into it in super detail, but the 
they missed the top line because those high margin businesses exceeded the overall profitability of the business was was decent, right? So it wasn't wasn't terrible. But here they've now lowered the bottom line too, um, pretty considerably below expectations. Uh, and then that brings down the whole year. So, you know, I looked after hours, the stock was down 8%. I think it'll be a little bit of a bloodbath tomorrow as everyone kind of like realigns towards, you know, this, well, what if it is a um, 13% grower? Uh, I don't think anyone had modeled out 13% growth for Amazon this year. So, so that'll be um, a little bit of a bloodbath and a resetting of expectations, which I think, uh, you know, again, uh, if I'm the new CEO, this is might as well go ahead and do it now. Um, and, and then hopefully he can kind of like use that foundation to, to start beating uh, and exceeding expectations. But that was, that was kind of the ugliest part. I think that really kind of, you know, everyone's kind of like a oh, mixed quarter, you know, hopefully the guidance will be kind of, you know, not really uh, impacted. And then it was kind of like a, a little bit of a shock at the end there um, about how low they did take the guidance down. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Amazon was one of the very first retailers to report their Q2 numbers. And so I, I think it is going to be super interesting to follow the rest of the earnings and see where where the rest of retail lands, um, you know, and, and whether they're adjusting their guidance for the end of the year. Because per your point, the, the sphere of uncertainty is is huge. And, you know, nobody knows, like, are we going to be back into pandemic behaviors in Q3 and Q4 as, as variants get worse? Or you know, is everyone going to be spending their money on weddings and vacations that, you know, had been deferred instead of uh, in retail? Like, how does the, the you know, um, tweaks in government stimulus and the child care credits and all those things impact spending? Like, there's just so many factors. It, it's really complicated, and it's going to be interesting to see how those all net out for the Walmarts and Targets and Best Buys of the world. Yeah, and, you know, uh, for listeners, we're going to, this is kind of one one data point, and we're going to keep track of other retailers as they report and, and kind of sort through it for you so we can figure out what's going on in the data. And, you know, here in retail land, by the time July rolls around and we head into August, we're all thinking about the fourth quarter. So what we're trying to do is parse these tea leaves and see if we can help you think through any strategies for the fourth quarter. So that's going to be where we'll start to to lay down some content here in the next several episodes. Yeah. Now, uh, a number of listeners asked me to ask you, like, because Amazon had such a soft quarter, it's presumably going to affect the stock. Is that going to slow down your plans to buy a ticket on Virgin Galactic at all? Or <laughs> uh, I have no desire to go to space. So I'll, I'm more than happy to watch the billionaires do their thing. And, and uh, you know, uh, it, and I'm glad they're not spending my tax dollars. So I'm, I'm all good with what they're up to. Uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, I think the listeners will be thrilled to know that you're staying safe. <laughs> Doing my best. Awesome. Well, I think that wraps up, uh, this, this quick take on Amazon earnings. Um, as always, if this was valuable to you, uh, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Thanks everyone for joining us and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 